Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 3, Broken Barren Land. To understand the importance of land for the Lincolns, it helps to look at their roots. In December 1620, an old man named Richard Lincoln suddenly fell and died while walking back from his fields in Norfolk in eastern England. This Richard exists only in legal records, which tell us two things about him. First, Richard was very much pro-marriage. He went to the altar four times in his life and had children with at least three of his wives. Second, Richard was part of what is called the minor gentry, or non-noble landowners, and left an estate of 35 acres. In his will, he also left money to the poor in Swanton Morley and Great Witchingham, village names so English you couldn't make them up. But for some reason, Richard left nothing to Edward, his oldest son. We know this because Anne and Elizabeth, Richard's daughters from his fourth marriage, sued Edward. They claimed that he wouldn't hand over six acres of land Richard had granted them in the will. Edward, in turn, bitterly accused the fourth Mrs. Lincoln, his stepmother, of cutting him out. Edward or his attorneys wrote that his father, quote, was much labored by his latter wife to make a will for the advancement of her and her children, while Edward was, quote, disinherited by her means and procurement. It's not clear what happened with the lawsuit. But Edward got little, if anything, from his father's estate, most of which went to a younger half-brother. He slipped into obscurity and possibly some kind of poverty before dying in 1640. By that time, according to one genealogical account, three of his sons had boarded ships for Massachusetts, including Samuel Lincoln, the first American ancestor of Abraham Lincoln. 200 years later, Thomas and Nancy Lincoln struggled to keep their family fed through farming, hunting, and carpentry. Thomas had seen the bulk of his father's estate go to his sibling, depriving him of land that might have helped him prosper, or at least serve as an insurance against hard times. Like his Lincoln ancestors, Thomas would pursue real estate throughout his life. But he would also find himself a victim of poorly drawn land laws, and like those English Lincolns he had no knowledge of, Thomas would be forced to find his fortune in a new land. Thomas Lincoln had shown some of the family restlessness in his youth, but by the time his son Abraham was born, the family had settled in Hardin County, in the north-central part of Kentucky, in an area known as the Penny Royal region. It's a place of ridges, caves, and sinkholes created by rainwater dissolving the underlying limestone over many millennia. Sinking Spring Farm, which encompassed about 300 acres of land, took its name from a cave that housed a spring of water. It was a beautiful country to look at, but a challenge to farm, even if one was dedicated to agriculture, which Thomas Lincoln was not. The name Pennyroyal comes from the minty-smelling, purple-blossomed Pennyroyal weed, allegedly the only thing anyone could grow in the country. Richard Creel, a farmer who owned Sinking Spring Farm in the mid-1860s, wrote, quote, My farm is broken, barren land, but can all be cultivated with the plow. It is divided into basins, hills, and hillside. 
Anciently, this land was nearly destitute of timber, being covered with barren grass, weed, and shrub, and occasionally a little grove of timber consisting of post oak, black oak, and hickory. A description of this farm is a very good description of all the country around, except on the little creek and branches, the land is more level and timbered. Another man who lived in the area, Erastus Burba, said Abraham's birthplace would, quote, take a man a long time to get his money out of it. Beyond the difficulty with the soil, there was a decades-old lien on the property that made it difficult to obtain clear title to the land. Thomas decided he didn't want that trouble. Two years after Abraham's birth, the family moved to a new farm about 10 miles to the northeast, called Knob Creek. Historians argue whether Thomas Lincoln traded up in making the move. Michael Burlingame said Knob Creek was worse land than Sinking Spring. He said, quote, Remote, small, and subject to flooding, it was much less desirable than the farm they were leaving. David Herbert Donald and Ronald White say it was much more fertile. Like Sinking Spring, Knob Creek is a very pretty area, surrounded by limestone ridges and timber, the presence of which always attracted Thomas. Late in life, Lincoln remembered it as, quote, a valley surrounded by high hills and gorges, and Berber wrote in 1866 that Knob Creek was, quote, one of the prettiest streams I ever saw. You can see a pebble in 10 feet of water. But the topography could be a challenge in raising the corn and beans Thomas planted. Abraham, who helped Thomas sow the fields, would remember rains rushing down from the hills and inundating the land, washing all the seed away. Abraham only set down a few other memories from Knob Creek, including once giving a fish to a passing soldier. He also recorded Nancy giving birth to a second son, named Thomas after his father. But the child lived only a few days, and was buried in a nearby cemetery. Those who knew the Lincolns remembered Abraham as a pretty unremarkable young boy. Susan Riney Yeager, the daughter of Lincoln's first school teacher, recalled in her old age that Lincoln would bend saplings at playtime and ride them like horses. Another said, quote, He always appeared to be quiet during playtime, never seemed to be rude, seemed to have a liking for solitude. Yet, there were also suggestions of a competitive streak in the young Lincoln. Austin Gallagher, a childhood friend of Lincoln's, told an interviewer, quote, it was their custom to climb up the high knobs and trees. Lincoln took a delight in excelling in each and every sport they might engage in. Abraham seemed to be close to his older sister Sarah, with whom he attended school when school was available. Jaeger said that Sarah, quote, was a regular little mother to him, and added, quote, I have seen her on rainy days, or when the roads were muddy, carrying him in her arms to and from the schoolhouse. At playtime, she would always insist that he play with her and the girls, telling him to keep away from the big boys as they were likely to hurt him in their rough play. Lincoln probably got as good an education as was available to a frontier child, though he would later describe it as defective. At home, the Lincolns had a Bible which Nancy read to her children. Michael Burlingame notes that the Sparrows, Nancy's foster parents, seemed to encourage literacy in their charges, and wrote, quote, it is probably to the Sparrow's credit that Nancy was regarded as better educated than most girls in the area. Her son, as an adult, 
would demonstrate intimate familiarity with Scripture. But teaching a child to read those words was a challenge on the frontier. Public schools, as we understand them, didn't exist. Instead, people sent their children to subscription schools, where parents traded whatever they could to support the teacher who ran the operation. Lincoln later said that the only requirement of a teacher was that he knew, quote, reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three. The rule of three is a way to calculate proportions. And added, quote, if a stranger supposed to understand Latin happened to sojourn in the neighborhood, he was regarded as a wizard. Not surprisingly, schools opened and closed unpredictably. A child who sat in a frontier school one year could go many seasons before entering another one. For all his disappointment in his formal education, Lincoln spoke well of his first teacher, Zachariah Riney, a Roman Catholic from Maryland. After Riney moved away, Lincoln was taught by a man named Caleb Hazel. Hazel belonged to the same church as the Lincolns, and Thomas Lincoln served as a groomsman at Hazel's wedding. Samuel Haycraft, who knew Thomas Lincoln as a young man, said Hazel, quote, could perhaps teach spelling, reading, and indifferent writing, and perhaps could cipher to the rule of three, but had no other qualifications of a teacher, except large size and bodily strength to thrash any boy or youth that came to his school. Riney and Hazel taught in a small, dirt-floored cabin, with the fireplace taking up one side and a log removed from the wall to provide light. Another log, spread across the length of the cabin, served as a desk. Yeager said, quote, There was just one bench made of a plank supported by stumps. This was regarded as a sort of luxury, and the children used to fight daily for the privilege of sitting on it. In this classroom, the students recited their lessons all at once and out loud, inspiring the name Blab School. Here, Lincoln got an education in reading. Riney and Hazel probably used a manual called Dilworth's Spelling Book. It started the student on words of two or three letters, arranged in a rhyming pattern, like Dan-Ban or Bib-Fib-Rib. With two dozen students in a cramped cabin speaking all at once, one can only imagine the cacophonous plain chant of Bed, Fed, Lead, Red, Wed, and Bag, Cag, Tag, Gag, Hag, Nag, Rag bouncing off the walls. From small words, the primer moved up to simple sentences like, No man may put off the law of God, and My joy is in God all the day, and Our God is the God of all men. In this way, Abraham Lincoln slowly learned to decipher the written word. Simple sentences about the divine probably blended seamlessly into the daily conversations the young Lincoln heard. The Lincolns were separate Baptists, a congregation born out of the hellfire preaching of the Great Awakening. As today, religion on the frontier had devotional and community aspects to it. Preaching had its inspirational qualities, but for people living in an age before mass communication, the pulpit was a door to all kinds of ideas, old and new. Thomas and Nancy Lincoln had been married by a circuit preacher named Jesse Head, who also doubled as a carpenter and writer. One neighbor said Thomas and Nancy were filled with, quote, Jesse Head's notions about the wrong of slavery and the rights of man, 
explained by Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. Head wasn't a lonely voice against slavery, but part of a debate that was riling Kentucky's Baptist churches. Human bondage existed in Kentucky from the time of Daniel Boone, and Article 7 of the state's 1799 Constitution protected slavery. By Abraham Lincoln's time, the institution was not only firmly embedded in the Commonwealth, but rapidly spreading. In 1790, there were about 12,000 slaves in Kentucky. In 1810, there were more than 80,000. The largest concentrations of slaves would be found in the Bluegrass region, east of Hardin County, but the institution was spreading in Abraham's birthplace. In Hardin County in 1800, there were 325 slaves. By 1811, a survey found more than 1,000, versus about 1,600 white men over the age of 16. Though he left no recollections of slavery during his Kentucky childhood, the institution surrounded young Abraham Lincoln. His father had served on a slave patrol before the birth of his children, and there were 44 slaves in a 36-mile area around Sinking Spring Farm against 85 taxpayers. The Lincolns lived near the Cumberland Trail, a major road between Louisville and Nashville. Sidney Blumenthal in the first volume of his political biography of Abraham Lincoln, wrote that the Lincolns would almost certainly have seen groups of slaves, handcuffed and bound, being marched down the road in groups known as coffles. Sometimes women and children walked without chains. Other times they were tied up. All would have been surrounded by armed white men, some of whom thought the march would harden them for the brutal field work awaiting these men and women further south. These scenes were so ghastly that they occasionally became surreal. The historian Marion Lucas, who wrote a history of African Americans in Kentucky, described a white minister named James Dickey traveling from Paris, Kentucky, to Lexington in 1822. Lucas wrote, quote, Hearing music in the distance and observing a flag bobbing ever skyward beyond a knoll, Dickey hurried his carriage to the top of the rise, where he pulled aside expecting to see a military parade. To his shock, a slave coffle appeared. Two violin-playing bondsmen led the way, followed by two slaves with cockades decorating their hats. In the midst of the caravan of about 40 male bondsmen, a pair of chained hands waved the American flag. The slaves, securely handcuffed, were joined together by short chains, which connected to a 40-foot-long chain that ran between them. About 30 women, tied together at one hand, followed the caravan. All marched in solemn sadness, the minister wrote. In antebellum America, Kentucky had a reputation for having a mild form of slavery, especially compared to the industrial brutality of cotton and sugar plantations in the Deep South. John Mason Brown, a 19th century historian of Kentucky, wrote, quote, the system of slavery thus contemplated was designed to be as mild, as human, and as much protected from traffic evils as possible. But it was to be emphatically perpetual, for no emancipation could be had without the assent of each particular owner of each particular slave. Now, it was true slavery took a different form in Kentucky than in Alabama or Mississippi. 
There were plantations in Kentucky, most notably Henry Clay's Ashland in the Bluegrass. But there were far fewer large slaveholders in the Commonwealth than in other slave states. Most Kentucky slaves worked on small farms, and unlike the Deep South, they often worked alongside an owner, which was thought to humanize slaves in the white mind. But a mild form of slavery is akin to a mild form of homicide. The owner who might have worked alongside a black man in a field could pull that man out and beat him to death at the slightest provocation. In 1811, two nephews of Thomas Jefferson living in Livingston County in western Kentucky tied a slave named George to the floor and, with the other slaves watching, murdered him with an axe. They then ordered his body dismembered and George's remains burned in the fireplace. His crime was dropping a water pitcher. As in other slave states, enslaved men and women in Kentucky were subject to beatings, sexual assault, and the constant threat of sales that would separate them from their loved ones. This was not, by any stretch of the English language, mild. As elsewhere, black men and women put up resistance by escape or work slowdowns, sometimes with violence and sometimes with self-mutilation. As elsewhere, most whites acquiesced in or actively promoted human bondage. But some dissented. In 1804, a group of Baptist ministers in the Commonwealth started refusing church membership to slaveholders. These ministers were called the Emancipators. According to an early history of Kentucky, quote, the movement compelled the attention of the associations, which passed resolutions declaring it improper for ministers, churches, or associations to meddle with the question of the emancipation of slaves or any other political subject. This gave such offense to the Emancipators that they withdrew from the General Baptist Union and, in 1807, formed an association of their own called the Licking Locust Association Friends to Humanity. Now, these were not abolitionists, as the term is understood. They weren't racial egalitarians, or even people demanding political action to end slavery. They expected moral suasion and repentance to rid the land of human bondage. The Friends to Humanity would not admit slaves into their congregations, and said members should exhort slaves to, quote, patience, submission, industry, and fidelity. On the other hand, members were forbidden from buying slaves, and while they agreed to hear the preaching of pro-slavery ministers, Carter Tarrant, a member of the group, wrote, quote, We believe ministers and churches of Christ may be in error. The Friends of Humanity suggested they could accept a gradual approach that would compensate slaveholders, but Tarrant added, quote, you must settle with your slaves first and pay up for the time you have had them and all the abuses they have received from your hands. Before Abraham's birth, the debate split South Fork Church, where Thomas and Nancy worshipped. The catalyst or scapegoat for the split was William Downs, a colorful figure whose career represented some of the best and worst features of frontier religion. On the positive side, Downs was a brilliant orator with a quick wit, though it contained a sarcastic streak that, according to one report, 
once provoked a Catholic priest to punch Downs in the face. Downs was also engaged in questionable conduct for a preacher, including at least one charge of being drunk. But Downs was also anti-slavery, preached an anti-slavery message, and stuck to it. In 1808, Downs was ruled to be in disorder and expelled from South Fork Church. It may have been the anti-slavery preaching, or the drinking, or both. Regardless, Downs formed his own congregation, the Little Mount Baptist Church, and Thomas and Nancy followed the preacher there. They seemed to like what the man said, whether against slavery or on other matters, and didn't mind Downs' personal struggles. Unfortunately, Downs and his allies were always a minority. The Emancipationist movement lasted no more than 15 years, and was in decline by the time the Lincolns left the Bluegrass State. Yet, the family developed, at a minimum, an aversion to slavery, and possibly a hatred of it. The Lincolns may have already objected to the institution on economic grounds, but by wedding anti-slavery thought to the staunch faith of frontier settlers, the emancipationists managed to get their message to Thomas and Nancy Lincoln, and into the ears of the young Abraham. Thomas Lincoln probably reached his economic apogee at Knob Creek. He owned a few horses, not a cheap commodity, and appears to have steered clear of debt. In an 1814 survey, Thomas ranked 15th out of 98 property owners in the area. This, however, does not appear to have had an impact on the material well-being of his family. If Thomas owned a lot of land, he may have struggled to make it pay. Nancy Lincoln worked as a laundress for several families during their time in Kentucky. Thomas was no businessman. Augustus Chapman, his in-law, said he was, quote, very careless about his business, a poor manager. At times, accumulated considerable property, which he always managed to make way with about as fast as he made it. This is the origin of Thomas Lincoln as shiftless loser. We should note that throughout his life, Thomas made major and often dangerous moves to improve his family's lot. He would now and then pursue entrepreneurial ventures, usually involving the sale of pork or timber, but these never quite seemed to pan out. It's fair to say Thomas wasn't a good farmer, and that he never really dreamed big, though his difficult youth may have killed his ambition. Nat Grigsby, who befriended Abraham Lincoln in Indiana, said Thomas Lincoln, quote, was happy, lived easy, and contented. He had but few wants and supplied these. He wanted few things and supplied them easily. His wants were limited by wanting few things. This Thoreau-like simplicity doesn't do much for Thomas's wife and children. The real stories of the Lincoln's poverty start in Indiana, but almost everyone who knew the family in Abraham's childhood considered them poor. Dennis Hanks called Thomas Lincoln, quote, a very poor man, and Abraham always referred to himself as a poor boy. In 1860, when speaking to a group of homeless children, Abraham remembered, quote, when my toes stuck out through my broken shoes in winter, when my arms were out at the elbows, when I shivered in the cold. Kentucky's chaotic land laws finally proved Thomas Lincoln's undoing. 
Before it entered the Union in 1792, Kentucky was part of Virginia, governed by the Old Dominion statutes. Unlike the territory north of the Ohio River, Kentucky followed Virginia law and never had a formal survey. When whites coming over the Wilderness Road settled the land, they marked their property boundaries like kids deciding which stone will be second base. According to David Herbert Donald, quote, It was settled in a random, chaotic fashion, with settlers fixing their own bounds to the property they claimed. A particular tree here, a rock there, and so on. Soon, the map presented a bewildering overlay of conflicting land claims, and nobody could be sure who owned what. The historian Ronald White recorded an early bleak joke from the settlement of the Bluegrass State, quote, Who buys land in Kentucky buys a lawsuit. Kentucky dropped property requirements for voting in large part because nobody could definitively prove what property they owned. This wrecked havoc on the Lincolns. We talked last time about the 238-acre farm Thomas leased to his sister and brother-in-law. He lost 38 acres of that land and ended up selling the whole property at a loss. The lien on Sinking Spring Farm, which Thomas inherited from previous owners, interfered with the title there. At Knob Creek, the courts initially left the Lincolns alone. But in 1815, Thomas Lincoln and several other settlers were sued by a Philadelphian who asserted ownership to 10,000 acres in the area and demanded back rent from the Lincolns and their neighbors. Thomas Lincoln got an attorney and fought the lawsuit for a time, but he could only hold out for so long. Kentucky's poor whites increasingly saw the land across the Ohio River as a safety valve. It had a proper U.S. survey, land sold for a modest $1.25 an acre, and settlers who claimed property there enjoyed clear title. Indiana, which was about to be admitted as the 19th state, had just approved a constitution committing the government to public education. In the summer of 1816, Thomas sold his Kentucky farm conducting the transaction in whiskey, a common medium of exchange on the frontier. He then built a flatboat and loaded it with his tools and his whiskey. Then an incident occurred that served as a cameo of Thomas Lincoln's life. As Augustus Chapman told it, quote, His boat capsized, and all he had in it was thrown into the river. He succeeded in saving most of his whiskey, a few tools, and a few other goods. He then got his boat righted and loaded what he had saved from the wreck. He again started on his journey in quest of a new home. Thomas landed at what is now Troy, Indiana. It was the southern end of a vast wilderness. Elias Pym Fordham, an Englishman who visited Indiana shortly after the Lincolns arrived, wrote that from a hilltop, Indiana was, quote, generally nothing but an undulating surface of impenetrable forest. It is seldom that a view of 200 yards in extent can be caught in Indiana. Thomas plunged into the forest, using an axe to knock down trees and vines thick enough to swallow a knife. A previous settler had blazed out something like a trail, but Thomas Lincoln and another man worked for miles to cut out a road to a neighborhood called Little Pigeon Creek. A local pioneer recommended a parcel of land to Thomas, who built fires at the corners of the property to mark his boundaries. 
He then erected a half-faced camp, a wooden awning or half of a tent open on one side that would serve as a temporary shelter. Leaving his possessions in the care of a neighbor, Thomas returned to Kentucky to get Nancy, Sarah, and Abraham. For now, the family left their farm animals behind. As we'll see, they might have been wise to leave them. Before they departed, the family stopped at the nearby cemetery to pray over the grave of the infant Thomas Lincoln. Like his ancestors, the elder Thomas was uprooting his family, chasing security deeper in the American interior. If nothing else, he would get relief from the interminable legal troubles that dogged him in Kentucky. But one wonders what Nancy Lincoln thought as she stood over the stone cut with the initials T.L. She was not, as far as we know, someone who would publicly argue with or contradict her husband. But Nancy Lincoln was an intelligent person and could easily have weighed hopes against sacrifices. She would have welcomed stability in their lives. Perhaps she saw opportunities for her children in Indiana. Maybe she hoped the gossip that chased her through Kentucky would not cross the Great River. But most of her family remained in Kentucky. No church existed in their new neighborhood, no place to find comfort, meet their neighbors, or get some sense of larger events. They would have to join in the creation of a community. Nancy and her family were about to pass from a stark but familiar land into a dark wood. Next time, we'll see the Lincolns cut a new life out of the dense forest and suffer a major tragedy that will change their lives. We'll also meet a Kentucky widow who will play a key role in one of the great American stories. 